Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on Contact to send me a message. And now, on with the interview. Today, I'm interviewing Nina Savelle Rocklin, the author of Food for Thought, Perspectives on Eating Disorders in 2017 by Rauman and Littlefield. I want to introduce my guest. Dr. Nina Savelle Rocklin is a psychoanalyst, author, radio host, and internationally recognized expert in the field of psychology of eating. She's been featured in Psychology Today, The Los Angeles Times, Prevention, Real Simple, Red Book, Huffington Post, and many other publications, as well as numerous radio shows, summits, and events. Her book, Food for Thought, explores the psychoanalytic underpinnings of eating disorders. And Dr. Nina also writes an award-winning blog entitled Make Peace with Food and hosts a call-in radio program, The Dr. Nina Show, which airs Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on LA Talk Radio. And you can reach it by going to winthedietwar.com. Dr. Nina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. I want to start with some background about you. What is your training in eating disorders? Well, my training in eating disorders actually started with my own personal history of eating disorders, which um, is, although this began when I was five years old, it actually directly led to me becoming an analyst. So when I was five years old, I suddenly and randomly decided that my thighs were fat. Um, hmm. And uh, I was a perfectly normal weight child. I, I, my parents were ex-hippie college professors, so there were no magazines or media. You know, I, I think they watched 60 Minutes, and that was the only thing that was ever on, on except for the news. So there, was, there were no media influences. I just, I just suddenly decided that thinner thighs would make me a better person. And this began my descent into really eating disorder hell, which by the time I was um, a teenager, every, every page of every journal of that time is numbers, just like what I weighed, what I was going to weigh, how many calories I burned, how many calories I ate. And eventually, in college, I went to therapy. And I went for three years and I shared everything in my life with my therapist, except for one thing. She had no idea what was going on with food um, because I was too embarrassed. And part of me did not want to give up my relationship to food and my body. So I would go in these phases of anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder. But in therapy, I started changing the way that I related to myself and the way that I... Um, 
responded to myself. And I became aware of feelings that I denied, and I learned to process those feelings. So after three years, uh, I no longer engaged in any eating disorder behavior, and not once had I ever talked about food. And people said, well, how is that even possible? How do you recover from an eating disorder, from three eating disorders, without ever talking about food? And I said, because because the problem was never food. The, the problem, that whatever was going on with food was actually a, a solution to the problem, which was my mean relationship to myself. And so learning to cope in a different way completely changed my behaviors. And then when I was actually in training to be an analyst, um, I realized why at the age of five did I suddenly and seemingly inexplicably decide that my thighs were fat. And, you know, as I said, my, my parents were college professors. They're very intellectual. And their, their affect and their kind of way of being there was very different from mine. So their idea of spending the day together as a family was to go to the library on a Sunday morning. And, you know, I, I wanted to be, I was more rambunctious and more spunky. And I was always being told, oh, you're too loud. You're too sensitive. You're too dramatic. You're too mm. much is the the message that I got. And so I think in my five-year-old brain, internalized that as, you know, concretely as, oh, there was too much of me. So really, my introduction to um, this work began from my own personal experience and then uh, just grew later when I went to grad school and when I worked actually um, after, before I got my doctorate and I, I had a master's, I worked in both a psychoanalyst's I had an internship with a psychoanalyst, and I had an internship at an um, IOP for eating mm-hmm. disorders. And that was extremely revealing in terms of what was helpful and what was not. And I really found that, that getting to what's uh, underneath, what is, what's symbolic, why is someone doing this, rather than, you know, I guess, what's eating at them, rather than focusing mm-hmm, on what mm-hmm. they're eating. Transformative, you know, and and I want to spend some time in a moment talking about your perspective on treatment for eating disorders. But before we do, I have to ask you, you know, it's so um, I'm so grateful that you you'll share your own personal experience and how it's informed your professional path. How did you decide that that was an important thing for you to do? Because I think a lot of therapists have their own struggles. Sometimes they struggle with the very things they help their patients with without revealing to their patients or the public that they have those struggles, you've made a different choice. And what informed that? I think that with eating disorders, shame is so pervasive. And um, people feel such shame. I, didn't, I never told my therapist what was going on because of shame. And right. I find that it really mitigates the shame for people to know, hey, not only do I know how to treat what's going on with food. I like to say I don't treat eating disorders. I treat people who struggle with eating disorders. But people, right. people find it very comforting to know that not only do I know how to liberate them from what's going on, but I know what it feels like to struggle. And if I could break free of this, then it is possible. So I think that I'm a, a person who offers a, a hope and that and that's sometimes enough to just keep them in the room. Right. And, and do you find that your patients appreciate knowing this about you? 
They all do. They all appreciate. I don't. I don't yeah. necessarily say, "Hey, how are you?" Let me tell you my history. But my history is all over right. the media, and pretty much everyone right. knows about it. So let's go to the basics, though, a little bit. I mean, let let's start with this. What exactly is an eating disorder? Well, I would say an eating disorder is is a way of a deleterious way of coping. Um, so, and there are three different eating disorders, as as you know, you know, anorexia. Which, you know, anorexia is a little bit different because when you when you starve your brain, you can't think on a starved brain. So it's very difficult to do psychoanalysis with someone who's really in the in, in the grip of anorexia. Which is why I mostly treat people with binge eating disorders or bulimia. Um, but as with me, an eating disorder is a symptom of the problem or a, a temporary solution to the problem. That it, it's a frenemy, as one of my patients once said. You know, it does something for people, but it also hurts them. And recognizing what it does for them is really so much of the work because when you can change uh, that, if you if you find comfort with words instead of comfort food, then that, not, not to be too general, but that can completely transform your relationship to food by changing your relationship to yourself. But I'm aware, you know, well, I'm aware that my listeners may not know that I also work with eating disorders. Um, I'm also aware that when I do work with patients with eating disorders, it becomes kind of, or when I work with people who don't, it becomes kind of tricky to distinguish between what is an eating disorder and what is a customer habit that is in line with current cultural trends? Because as I'm sure you're seeing too, we see a lot of people now, um, and we see it on Instagram and social media, we see a lot of people becoming very concerned with quote-unquote fitness and clean eating. So how do you, when someone comes into your office and, and they're not talking about having an eating disorder, but they're displaying behavior like this, how do you distinguish what's, what's truly an eating, an eating disorder from behavior that may not qualify as an eating disorder, but is nonetheless a bit concerning and that is maybe in line with, like I said, popular trends right now? Well, I guess my situation is a little bit different because people seek me out because I specialize in eating disorders and with one exception, every single person in my practice uh, has an eating disorder of some type. Um, but some of them have said, oh, listen, do I have a real eating disorder? You know, I'm, not, I'm only throwing up, you know, twice a week. And I hear about people who throw up 10 times a day. So is this real? Or, or, and, and I say, look, if it, is, if it is a problem for you, if it causes you distress, if you feel shame, if you feel bad about yourself, then it's a problem that needs our attention, whether it fits some clinical diagnosis or not. But I, but I know a lot of people who, especially young people, who feel bad when they have, you know, pancakes and eggs and bacon for breakfast instead of their smoothie, or feel bad when they miss a workout. And they might say to you, well, yes, I feel bad about this, but I'm supposed to feel bad because I really should have gone to my work and I really should have stuck to my clean eating diet. And I'm, I'm wondering what, what would you say to something like that? I tell them we're 
don't should on yourself. You know, what, where are these shoulds coming and where are these beliefs? And I'll, and I would say, look, I know this is on your mind and this is very important to you. And, you know, clearly it's causing you some distress. But if we can just put that aside a moment, I wonder what you would be worried about if you weren't worried about this. Mm. What, what does focusing on this keep you from? And I find that people are very open to that kind of conversation. They're very open to, um, you know, understanding the symbolism of what's going on. Like, like one thing that I hear all the time is, why food? You know, people, well, one person said, why can't I be addicted to meth? At least I'd be skinny. I mean, and, <laughs> and she was completely serious, which was pretty tragic. That's scary, yeah. Um, yeah, it's really scary. And by the way, I, I should also say that uh, I treat people between the ages of like 22 and, and 75. Most of them are, and men too, treat, half my practice is men, and many of these people are adults in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s who struggled for decades. Um, so it's not just a, about people who are kind of in the Instagram world and going like, oh, let me post know, my thighs or what I'm eating for breakfast. I mean, they, they have struggled for decades and they know that there is something going on that has nothing to do with food. Food is, food is, is involved, but that there's something going on with them by the time they even come in my door. So um, what I told this woman is that as human beings, our, our first experience of love and connection is bound up with the experience of feeding. Oh, because if uh, we Think about when a baby is fed, a newborn held in a parent's arms and feeling safe and connected and loved. So on a very primal level, eating becomes fused with that very early sense of, of, of connection, that, that bond of love. So we don't consciously think of it that way, but it's part of our psyche that food equals mothering or, or nurturing. So that's why eating for comfort really means having the experience of being comforted by another person. And I say, look, food represents people. We describe relationships the same way that we describe food. They're fulfilling. They're satisfying. We're hungry for love. We're starving for attention. And whereas people can be unpredictable, unreliable, and unavailable, food is predictable, reliable, and available. So it can be easier to t- turn to food or away from food so are you saying than, than to people. And so this is, the, oh, was, this is the kind of conversation that I often have very early on with people that sets the tone that, like, look, we're not going to be talking about what you're eating and why. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to mm-hmm. look at what's eating at you. What is this, what is this behavior serving? As long as they are, of course, healthy and able to be in treatment. Someone is in a dangerous place and is urging 10 times a day, it's going to be a little different. Right. So, so assuming the person is physically stable enough and therefore medically and mentally capable of doing this work, if I'm hearing you right, are you saying that you work from the premise that we play out our our struggles in relationships or our struggles with other human beings, that we kind of play them out with food, that we displace those conflicts, those troubling feelings onto food, onto our relationship with food? 
it's it's different for it's different for everybody, but I can say that um, people who are lonely often will tell me that they eat until they are they are so full that they're in pain. You know that they're symbolically filling the loneliness and the emptiness of not of disconnection or of not having meaningful relationships. They they sort of fill up with food to make up for it, or people who are anorexic or restrict, they will deprive themselves of both food and relationships. They turn away from all needs, including food, including uh, love, connection, so that there is a, that there's something getting enacted and expressed uh, internally through whatever the behavior is with food. Bulimia um, often can be a, a way of expressing ambivalence over needs or wants. So the binge is, oh my God, I, I need so much. I'm so empty. I'm so whatever. I need so much. And the purge is, I, I'm going to get rid of my needs. Now, people aren't consciously thinking of that. They're just thinking, oh, I've got to have that. Why can't I stop? Now I've got to, I don't want to gain weight, so let me purge. That's what they're consciously thinking at first. But then when we kind of slow things down and look back and then eventually in the moment, they're able to say, wait a minute, why am I wanting to do this? What am I conflicted about? And, and this brings us then to the next thing I want to know more about, which is your psychoanalytic perspective. What, what, is, what does it mean to take a psychoanalytic perspective when working with eating disorders? Well, you know, it's interesting because there is no single psychoanalytic perspective um, on the whole, I, I have a particular perspective called object relations, which the, the names of these perspectives are just completely confusing to me because they're not very user-friendly. But overall, you know, psychoanalysis uh, views self-defeating behaviors and, and, and painful, upsetting emotions as symptoms of deeper problems. So kind of like... Um, Every gardener knows that removing a weed is not a permanent solution. You've got to dig out that proverbial root to get rid of it for good. And I, I really like that analogy. The problem is not the weed. The problem is the root that grows it. So similarly, the weed is the symptom, which is it's, that brings someone into treatment. And it can only be alleviated by some emotional gardening, you know, getting rid of that root, which is underground, similar to our unconscious, which is out of awareness, but not out of operation. We can't, we don't know we're thinking certain things. We don't know we're feeling certain things. We don't know we're conflicted, but it's expressed in our behavior. So object relations basically is that relationships between you and another person growing up eventually become internalized. So if, for example, you have a critical dad, um, you then internalize that critic, and it becomes you being critical mm. to yourself. It, so an object actually re refers to a, a person, a person that, that then becomes kind of internalized or interjected. One more way in which psychoanalytic lingo can be, can be confusing for people who are not psychoanalysts is I'm wondering how you explain all this to new patients and, and wondering if this... Meat weed metaphor is one that you use with people who come into for help and don't know anything about what psychoanalysis is. Absolutely, and they get it. I mean, people tell me all the time, like, 
people aren't going to want to hear this. They're not going to hear that food equals people. Like, what are you, what are you saying? Like, they're just going to laugh at you. I find the opposite. I find that people are, if you'll pardon the expression, hungry to understand themselves on a, on a deeper level, that they know on some, on some level that they, they know that whatever's going on has to do with something else. And the explanation makes sense to them. And when they become curious, instead of critical, when they become curious about, hey, why am I doing this? What's this all about? What is going on here? Why am I doing this now? Um, that they, 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 they get it. And then they start coming in and saying, oh, you know, I realize, like, I stop myself and I, I ask myself, hey, what's going on? Why are, and they'll say, uh, often they come in and they talk to themselves um, from second person. And their, their second person kind of statements sound like, you know, how could you have eaten so much? You're never going to lose weight. You're awful. Right? Which is, who's talking from an object relational viewpoint? Right. You know, that's, that's an indication that you've internalized some kind of voice. Um, and that eventually, as they relinquish that, they'll, they'll, use, they'll come from a place of I and say, oh, I wondered why I ate all that. And I really got that I was feeling this or that. And, and I called a friend instead of, or I talked to myself, or I, you know, I did it, but I didn't feel so bad about it as I used to. But people really get it. And they want, they want to understand themselves better. And when you offer them an explanation, as strange as it might seem to people who have been dieting and just think that food is the problem, they do take to it. And, well, it sounds like you have figured out a way to stoke their curiosity about themselves. And, and combined with a certain, level, a certain amount of desperation, I imagine, that they're coming in with. You, you know, you make the point at the very outset of the book that... It, that you want to translate psychoanalytic concepts into normal English. I love that you're doing that, but I'm wondering what is motivating you to do that? Is this, is this book for the mainstream public or is it for a psychoanalytic audience or both? Both. What I really wanted to accomplish with this book was that anyone with an interest in eating disorders could understand the psychoanalytic perspective by reading this. You don't have to be a clinician. You don't have to be an analyst. Um, when I was in training, what, what just made me so crazy was the, the language, which was meant almost like, it almost felt like a, another language that was meant to keep people from understanding it rather than, hey, we have something to say. Let's make it user-friendly. Let's make, let's help people understand. So, um, I really think that psychoanalysis has so much to offer, and it's so misunderstood. Most people think of this, you know, the silent male analyst, Freud, who doesn't show any humanity or emotion and is completely silent throughout the whole session. And this is a complete stereotype, and in terms of contemporary analysis, as you know, that's, that's not what happens. You know, that the actual experience of psychoanalysis is deeply personal. You know, it's, it's, an, it's a journey that the analyst and the patient take on together. And I, I look at it as an investigation into the past that transforms the present. But I tell people, this is another analogy I make, like, look, we are detectives of your psyche. We are working together to solve the mystery of what's causing these current difficulties with food and your relationship with yourself. 
and in doing so, we're gonna we're gonna find a new way for a new paradigm for you to um, be with yourself and others, and re- and and relate to yourself and others. It, it's clear that you really have found a way to speak about speak psychoanalytically, but in plain English, in a way that patients can understand. Which leads me to the next thing I want to ask you about, and it's something that we really do have to talk about when talking about the treatment of eating disorders, and and that is the current trends, at least the one that I see, and I'm sure you see, in treatment for eating disorders. You know, my own training in centers that I worked in before, uh, the treatment was much more focused on cognitive behavioral techniques that folks could use on DBT, distress tolerance and emotion regulation. A lot of eating disorder treatment comprises group-based therapy. And when you factor in insurance, it becomes even more focused on symptom reduction, weight restoration, and getting people out the door as soon as possible. What do you think about that? Well, all I can tell you is that I have seen many, 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 many people who have gone to treatment center after treatment center after treatment center and gotten nowhere. And I think that managed care is facilitating an atmosphere where the symptoms are being treated seen as a brain-based illness rather than taking into consideration the really complex interplay with our brains and our minds. And I think it's very troubling. And look, look, I started as a cognitive behavioral therapist. And, and then I was wondering, but why do people have these beliefs? Why do they have these distorted you know, misperceptions? And people would say, oh, it doesn't matter. But it did matter. Yeah. It, it, it was everything because they, you, cannot, you cannot just change your thinking without knowing where your thinking comes from. And so to answer your question, I think these trends um, are, are actually very damaging to people because then they feel like failures when they don't respond to this kind of treatment or it comes back. And they say, what's wrong with me? I got this... I spent $40,000 in this treatment center, and I'm exactly where I was uh, six weeks ago. Why can't I, what's wrong with me that I'm not getting it? And it's because they're being presented with something that is, you know, fine, but it's, it's, it's akin to pulling weeds. It's just not going to get to the, the core reason. And they, treatment centers can't. They see people for 30, you know, 60, 90 days. How can you really get to the, the, the core issues? They're good for weight restoration for people with anorexia and things like that. But, um, yeah, I find it very, very troubling. So then why do, you, why do you think it is a trend? Then why do you think managed care and um, other forces are, are trying to move things in, in that direction? I, I think you said it, managed care, right? The insurance companies do not want to pay for treatment, and they, uh, I don't take insurance. I don't take insurance at all. I provide super bills so people pay me, and they're, they're reimbursed by their insurance companies. And often I will help them when their insurance companies refuse to pay or say asinine things like, you know, why aren't you going to Weight Watchers? <laughs> I mean, the, I've, I've had a couple of conversations with insurance companies that are just completely perplexing, they're like, this person should be cured after 10 weeks. Um, there's just no understanding of the, the depth um, of, uh, of these roots and the reasons why people 
are doing what they're doing. They, they don't want to pay for it. And, and it seems like that, yeah, and that lack of understanding is unfortunately becoming systematized in, in our managed care system. So, so then I wonder when patients come to you, are they ever overwhelmed by the idea that working through their eating disorder is going to take time, that it's, it's going to be perhaps a, a longer journey than they thought? And how do you, how do you prepare them for that? Well, one thing that I tell them, because one thing that they say is, they'll say something like, I know I'm always going to have to deal with this. Oh, I've been to therapy before, and I was told I'll always have to deal with this. And I disabuse them of that notion. I say, no, you do not always have to deal with this. You and I are going to work together to liberate you and to free you so that you don't have to, but it, it took a long time for you to develop to the point at which you, you know, you organize yourself in this way. So we have to kind of deconstruct that organization, that, that structure, that way of being in the world. We've got to deconstruct it while at the same time constructing a new way of relating to yourself. And it takes time before the, the deconstruction even matches the, the new construction. So, but eventually the new will take over. It's not, you can't flip a switch and change. But eventually the new will take over, and you're going to leave this behind for good. And that gives them hope. That's encouraging. Yeah. That, that, that must be really encouraging for them. I, I ask you this next question as, as a therapist, and maybe this, this is like asking for some free supervision. But, you know, I find, I don't know if you find this, maybe particularly when working with patients with anorexia, anorexia or other forms of restriction, that... Even when I am inviting them to speak at deeper levels about what's going on emotionally, what's going on in their, in, in how they're relating to other people, it, it seems to me that oftentimes they want to talk about food. They, they think that that's the problem and they want to talk about their fear of bread or of calories or of not working out and, and want to stay at the concrete level. And it can be difficult to, it can be difficult for them to accept the invitation to look at what's underneath. How do, do you encounter that in your practice? And if so, how do you, and, and sometimes we can even be pulled towards joining them in the concreteness, especially when we're a little bit concerned about, you know, the, the symptoms flaring up. So how do you deal with that? Well, I tell them, I know that this is what's on your mind and it's at the forefront of your mind and this is what you want to talk about. But, and we can talk about it but let's be detectives and look into what you might be saying. What is it? What, what fear, if it's not fear of getting fat, what is it? What does getting fat mean? What does fat mean? What, what is the real fear here? Um, I had a, a gentleman in my, my group who uh, had been, a, as he put it, a fat kid. And he came to my group once a week for uh, about a year, and all he could talk about was his weight. He was, a, he was in his 60s, so he'd been overweight as a child. And I just would over and over say, okay, you know what, I know it's on your mind, but, but just humor me. If we're, you know, what else could fat mean? Are you saying you're too much? Are you saying just fat mean unlovable? You know, I, I sometimes interpret that to them, what it means, because they don't, they don't know. Um, and when it resonates, it resonates. 
And now he, he realizes that his fear of gaining weight was a fear of becoming the ostracized, unliked kid in high school. Um, so it took a long time, but, he, you know, he, he kept, he, they keep coming, as long as they keep coming back, sometimes it takes a long time where you just have to say, but what if, what if we were to look at it this way? Um, there's some part of them that's listening because they keep coming back. They know it. They fight it, but they also know that there's some truth there. Well, it sounds like you kind of teach them a, how to think at that level, how to be curious at that level. Yes, yeah, because no one has, has taught them how to reflect. Right. You know, they, they've been taught how to react, but not how to, how to reflect and think, well, why am I, you know, what, what does this mean to me, or why, you know, why am I doing this? What could it possibly mean? What's this doing for me? This is a new language for many, many people in this age where you're not supposed to feel your feelings or, you know, recognize conflicts or have wishes or fears or any of those things. And what I really love about your book is that you, there are a lot of novel concepts in the book, psychoanalytic concepts, and you really break down what they mean and how you can think about them and understand them, again, in plain English. And if it's okay, I want to talk about a couple of them so our listeners can get a sense of, of what I mean. So, for instance, one of the concepts you discuss is a concept of object hunger, particularly, I think, with regards to fathers and development of eating disorders. What is object hunger? What do you, and, and what, are your, what is your idea about that? Well, as I said before, objects really stand for the, the parents or the people or the relationships from the past. And it's, it's a wish have um, to have something that 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 didn't have to have a kind of um, relationship, a kind of bond that is missing, and this hunger can be manifested uh, actually through hunger, the, the sense of yearning for someone for something can be experienced as physical hunger, but object hunger basically refers to um, so that that wish to connect. I, in the book, I talk about one of my patients whose mother used to um, punish her by giving her the silent treatment. And she recalls being a very young child, like maybe four or five years old, and she had done something, some, some transgression of a small child, and her mother gave her the silent treatment, and she re- remembered being in the kitchen, and I'm sure it's notable that it was in the kitchen, and pulling on her mother's apron and saying, Mother, Mother, please talk to me. Please talk to me. You know, the, it's almost palpable when you, when you feel that, that, that hunger for nurturing and, and connection and just being seen and understood rather than the kind of alienation that she then felt. Was that traumatic for your patient, those, those episodes of silent treatment? Oh. Absolutely. In fact, she couldn't be on the couch um, because even about three seconds worth of silence was tr- was experienced as if I had abandoned her. And and what kind of what kind of eating disorder symptoms did she end up manifesting uh, to express this this hunger and this trauma? Well, uh, first, it it actually changed throughout her life. Uh, 
first, it, when she was younger, it was anorexia. And the restriction of food really expressed how restricted she felt, how deprived she felt mm-hmm. of, her, of her mother's love. And her father was kind of workaholic, n- not around, didn't see this, wasn't very involved with the, the kids. Um, so the, the anorexia was a, like a, a, a way of expressing the intensity and the level of her deprivation. Later, as she got in, as she developed object hunger, um, the wish to have that became transitioned into, well, remember food represents mother, nurturing. It became um, uh, bulimia. So she, she wanted it so much, but then she didn't want to want her mother. So she would binge and then purge, which we came to understand as a wish to be fulfilled filled up and, and feel warm and cozy and feel loved and then just getting rid of the wish because it was so humiliating to want what she didn't have. So it's like she went through a period in her life when perhaps she, she repressed, you might say, if we use old language, this, this hunger. But once she got in touch with that on some level, it became quite intense, it seemed. And, and then she entered into a new kind of conflict over wanting, but not wanting to want it, but still wanting it, and not knowing how to resolve that. Am I, inter- am I hearing you right? Yes. Yes. And then even later in her life, by the time she came to me, she was in her 60s. Even later in her life, she would find herself wanting um, at certain times when she was alone and, and felt, felt lonely, she would, she would want these certain kinds of cookies, which when we explored that, these were the same cookies that her mother used to bake in that kitchen. And these cookies were some of the only things that her mother could freely give to her. Her mother was also, in addition to giving her the silent treatment, her mother was also very depressed. So she was this sort of unavailable, non-present. The, the, there was a presence of an absence. Right. And so then, then she turned, you know, as she evolved as a person... The eating disorder took on different, it manifested differently, but it all came from the same core, which is this, this deep object hunger. It, it seems like the meta message is that an eating disorder is sort of like a billboard saying, sort of shouting, There's, there is some sort of relational trauma here, or there, there is some sort of problem happening here regarding wanting and needing and, and denying. But it's, it's a billboard that needs to be decoded, if I understand you right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So another thing you talk about in the book, and, I, and that I hope you can help non-psychoanalytic folks understand and break down, is the concept of identification with the aggressor. Because I think that's a difficult one for a lot of folks to, to grasp. What does that mean, and, and, and how does, what does that have to do with eating problems? Well... Um, well, remember, eating problems are really problems dealing with conflict and, and emotions and all of that. So identification with the aggressor is when, um, back to my example earlier of the critical parent. So if, if you grow up with a critical parent and nothing you do is right, and that parent is constantly, or so it seems to you, um, constantly deriding you and, and telling you that you could be doing better and 
know, all of that. And you just can't stand this critical parent. You just wish this critical parent would shut up. But then you grow up and you start saying the same sorts of things to yourself. Why can't I do better? What's wrong with me? Or often people, this is when they speak in the second person. When you speak in the second person, that is a sign of identification with the aggressor very often. Um, And so in that, so you've identified with the critical way of relating to you. That's the aggressor. Again, this language. I tell you, who came up with this language? Um, it, it's, it's just, just a, another way of talking about um, how, you, how we internalize our experiences so that what becomes between you and another person becomes a conflict between different parts of you. But why do you think someone who suffered at the hands of a parent who was so critical and who therefore knows how awful it is to be at the receiving end of such criticism, why would such a person, knowing what he or she knows about that sort of treatment, why do you think that person would then end up repeating it and passing it on? Well, it's not logical, but it is psychological. Mm-hmm. So there could be different reasons. Um, I, I had a patient whose father passed away very suddenly, and he had been extremely physically and emotionally abusive to her. And she was very verbally abusive to herself throughout her life um, because she thought, you know, children think parents are gods. So if, if, if your parent is, tre- is treating you this way, well, you must deserve it. Um, uh, so, and also because it's better to be the one who uh, can change than to think, oh my gosh, I am stuck with this parent. Mm. Um, what do I, or, or some other adult or some other person, uh, that's what Fairbairn called the moral defense. Again, strange name, but it basically means that it's better to be the person who says, hmm, I must, I'm being treated badly. I must be bad. So let me try to change myself. That gives me the, the illusion of hope. And what happens is it, it becomes this strategy to get past your circumstances that ends up being a conviction about who you are. But this patient whose father died, shortly after he passed away, she began cutting. And we came to, so basically she kept him kind of alive Mm. in her by treating herself, her body, the way he treated her. He beat her with a belt. Um, So she didn't beat herself with a belt, but she cut herself. So that was her way of, of unconsciously keeping him alive by being to herself, her body, as he had been to her. As a way of perhaps um, protecting from, from loneliness and, and loss. Um, yes. Yeah. I, you know, I, I guess, and, and I'm thinking about what you were saying before about, you know, re, re, taking in or taking the blame when it's someone else who is criticizing us, I wonder if you often discover that people would, they, they'd rather be bad than be helpless. Like they'd rather be the bad child, which gives them some hope, than accept that actually it's, it's, it's not their fault, it's, it's their parents and there's, there's, they can't change them. There's nothing they can do about it. Absolutely. Helplessness is one of the most horrible states that people can feel. It's, it's just it's so profoundly 
awful and unbearable. Um, my One of my mentors, Axel Hoffer, wrote a, a wonderful paper about helplessness um, and described the different ways that people respond to it. Uh, it and also, that, that answers your previous question, because sometimes people recreate the past to give a sense of mastery over the helplessness of the original circumstance. So if you feel you feel helpless because you're being in the, the case of my patient, she felt scream, but she felt felt so helpless that then by becoming the one who was the beater or the cutter, she felt a sense of mastery. Uh, I'm not the I'm not the helpless one. I'm the one who's you know doing it. I'm, and of course, she was both, and that's why our minds are so complicated. That's why I, the line that I just used, I use a lot. It's not logical, but it's psychological. I'm going to steal that if you don't mind. <laughs> it's, re- <laughs> it's really great. You clearly take your patients through quite quite an emotional and, and deep but important journey. And I wonder what then recovery looks like and how, how you define recovery. I am not a fan of that word because I think you recover from, you know, the flu or you recover from a bad breakup or you recover from something that happens to you. I like to think of it as liberation. Mm. That you really, you really, it's a paradigm shift. You, it, you're no longer uh, relating to yourself in a destructive way. You're relating to yourself in a constructive way. You don't live in such a scary world anymore. Um, often, often I see this in the way that people's dreams change. So they, they will often come in and initially they'll report dreams and they're being chased and people want to murder them. And they, it represents the dangerous world that they live in, even if it's the, their danger from themselves to themselves. And I find that when people are getting better and really changing, their dreams change dramatically as well. Um, so to me, liberation means peace, that, you, that, that you're at peace with yourself, that you know that you can handle things, that you're, that you're kind to yourself, you're not aggressive and critical, and that you feel some hope. And, and as patients are feeling better or doing better, do you find that they are more curious than they were at the beginning about their dreams, about their unconscious life? Yes. Now, some people find it easier to talk to, to me through their dreams. I had one person who could not speak to me, could not, was too terrified to talk. Um, and when I told her that as an analyst I, I you know, study dreams and interpret dreams, she started dreaming. I guess her unconscious was listening. She started dreaming and remembering mm-hmm. her dreams, and this actually led to a, a remarkable insights and breakthroughs. So sometimes dreams are the, the, the only way that people can find a window to their unconscious. You know, I, there's so much more that we could talk about regarding the book, but I want to make sure to also let our listeners know about all the other ways that they can find you because you're doing a lot more than just writing and promoting this book. You also have, like I mentioned at the beginning, uh, some shows that you do and a blog. Can, can you tell us about those? Yes, well, I have a radio show, as you said, on LA Talk Radio, um, and it's not an eating disorder 
uh, a radio show. It's for anyone with an unhappy, unhealthy relationship to food. Anyone who wants to know how to lose weight without dieting, essentially. Uh, and then I have the Dr. That's called the Dr. Nina Show. And I also have a video series on YouTube called the Dr. Nina Show. My blog is Make Peace with Food. And they could get access all of this uh, on my website, Win the Diet War, um, where they can also get some free downloads and access to a lot of information. Yeah, I think this is amazing. You know, the thing is, I find that so many psychoanalysts are shy and like to see patients in the privacy of their office. Maybe they do some writing and presenting for other psychoanalytic audiences, but not you. You're clearly doing something different and really trying to reach a wider audience outside of our own community. Why is that? And, and was that ever at the beginning a, a struggle for you? Uh, I, it was not a struggle because I feel so passionate about helping the world know that there is something out here that's been kind of hidden, I guess since the 50s with the heyday of psychoanalysis was in the 50s. And since then, people really don't even know about it. And yet, it is so helpful. And so I was motivated to translate psychoanalytic principles into user-friendly language to help people, to help people understand themselves better. Because um, to, to get to that, that root, because all I see every day are people, you know, plucking weeds going why why is this weed keep coming back why am i why am i continuing to do this what's wrong with me i want to say there's nothing wrong with you there's a reason you're doing what you're doing if you're doing something you don't want to do or you're not doing something that you want to do there is always a reason and once that can be understood then you can change it's like you can't fight an invisible army you just get battered but when you when you make that army visible, then you could do battle. And then you can change. Well, I think that you have achieved the goal that you set out for with this book because it really is user-friendly and it really, I think, does the psychoanalytic community proud. And, and it's a real service to, to not just our community, but to people who can now for once understand what it is that we're trying to talk about in the way that we think. Um, and again, the book is called Food for Thought, Perspectives on Eating Disorders. Dr. Nina, we're almost out of time, but before we go, what are you working on next? I am working on a mainstream book called Liberate Your Life. As you can see, I have a lot of themes of you know liberation and mm -hmm. battle, battling things. Uh, it's called Liberate Your Life, uh, I'm, and it will be about helping people deal with binge eating disorder. Um, but it's a, for a mainstream audience, and uh, it's due to the publishers in one month. So wow. next year, hopefully it will be out. Wow. Well, that sounds really exciting. And you have an open invitation to return to our show when the book comes out, if you want to talk about it. I would love to. Thank you so much. And again, thank you for joining us, Dr. Nina. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for having me. Take care. This is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology in New York. I hope that you enjoyed the interview that you just listened to, and I also hope that you'll keep letting me know who you would like to hear on the show next or what books in psychology you're reading. To let me know, go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on Contact. Until next time, have a great week. <laughs>